Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Air horns, big announcement time. (laughs) Yes, I love it. That's what I want. We have big news for the podcast. Big news for the podcast. Um, I have gotten rid of Devin and replaced her (laughs) with with her identical twin. (laughs) Yes. No. So, um, background story time on why our intro and about and all of that stuff sounds different now um that's because uh my very anglo self is from north carolina where i have the very english name of devon which is fine it's just it's fine there no one ever thinks anything of it except for that maybe sometimes that i'm a man if they haven't seen me whatever everything's fine but now i live in quebec where uh we speak french and unfortunately, um, when I say my name to people speaking French, and they're like, hey, what's your name? And I say, Devin. Um, it sounds exactly like the command form of the word guess in French. So essentially. Which is fantastic. <laughs> So essentially, I keep having this interaction where someone's like, what's your name? And I'm like, guess and they're like pissed off justifiably um, i just again appreciate that you have been rumpelstiltskin <laughs> these past three years just running around a fairy tale creature like haha you must guess my name <laughs> yeah i had a lady at the pharmacy get really mad at me she was like you need to have a conversation with your parents <laughs> um so anyway that's what i did and my mom picked out a new name for me because she was really upset that I was getting rid of the name that she gave me. So whatever, she got to pick a new name uh, that is understandable in the French-speaking world, because that is where I live now and forever. This is fair. And I mean, you you did get to veto some of her picks. Uh, You are not going to go around calling yourself Fleur or Lydia. (laughs) Yeah. Which are perfectly fine names, but I don't think they, they would suit you as well. Yeah, no. I don't want to be Lydia Bennett. <laughs> this is bad news. Apologies to any Lydias out there. <laughs> you have a fine name. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now I'm, I'm Margot. It's coming at a time when I'm also about to get married and changing my last name, so I'll have a whole new name incredible (laughs) so yeah anyway that's what's going on with that um the opening's gonna be different i'm gonna put something on social media about it and uh that's that's it no longer gonna be named literally guess (laughs) it's so awful (laughs) okay although it is hilarious what a power move what's your name guess (laughs) oh god so awful 
Anyway, you know what else was awful, Devin? <laughs> Going through Lent in the Middle Ages. What a smooth transition. <laughs> ten out of ten. I'm a professional, Margot. <laughs> Apologies. That's I'm I might I might mess this up a few times. What? I called you Devin. Oh, I do not care. Literally two seconds after we explained <laughs> the song. It's fine. It's mostly We'll like, just cut that out. It's mostly that I'm ch- so I'm changing it on the podcast for you guys because uh in my professional life it's going to be different and I want like anything that I publish or anything else to be consistently under the same name and since I live and work in Quebec. We just want consistently the same name for for that purpose. Uh anyway, that's that's about it. Lent really okay, sucked. Anyway. Um, Lent but also, so this week, uh, <laughs> we should introduce our episode topic, which is, you know, Lent, because that is the season <laughs> that we are moving into in the liturgical year and historically, the time of year. Um, and we're also mm-hmm. going to focus not just on Lent itself, but on other instances in history of prohibition, temperance, abstinence, um, all the times when people tried to enforce yeah. no fun times rules. So we should probably start, uh, <laughs> just for anyone out there who's not aware, going to define what Lent is. So Lent is the roughly six weeks leading up to Easter. There are 40 days of fasting and praying and spiritual cleansing and preparation to commemorate the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the desert. So at this point, you are supposed to focus on prayer, on almsgiving and charity, and historically on fasting. Now, traditionally, um, this involves cutting out all animal products. You might be allowed to eat fish. Um, and in, in, in some, um, you know, denominations, that is still the case. Um, you know, if you are Orthodox, people uh, observe what's called the Great Lent. So for 40 days, you don't eat any animal products. Um, but then in the modern era, fasting can is is more likely to be sacrificing some other form of luxury. So that might be, you know, people give up alcohol or they give up sweets or, you know, they might give up like TV or, you know, whatever it is that you want to give up <laughs> that is difficult for you to do. So yeah. basically... The brief history of Lent is we're not 100% sure the specifics of when this was codified specifically. Uh, fasting is obviously common across a, a lot of religions. And, you know, there was very much, you know, in Christianity, there had been fasting around since the very beginning, since it was an offshoot of the Jewish tradition, which, again, also includes fasting um and praying during times of spiritual kind of renewal but lent specifically dates to at least the early 4th century maybe a little bit earlier um because it is mentioned at the council of nicaea which took place in 325 where they wrote that there need to be two provincial synods that should be held each year, so like a big meeting, basically. And they state, quote, that one before the 40 days of Lent. So this is a pretty old tradition, all things considered. It's been around since at least 
you know, the three hundreds. Um, and there was at this point, you know, in early Christianity, there was some debate about when exactly you're supposed to fast. So, you know, for example, in Jerusalem, people would fast for 40 days, but they would only do Monday through Friday. So Saturday, Sunday, you could, you know, eat animal products, which then means obviously that Lent lasts for eight weeks. Whereas in Rome and, you know, later just Western Christianity in general, people fasted for six weeks. So it was Monday through Saturday. Sunday was not a fast day. You could break your fast then. Um, and then Lent lasts six weeks. But overall, it's basically about 40 days-ish before Easter. You're supposed to abstain from flesh, meat, from all things that come from flesh as milk, cheese, and eggs. Yeah. I mean, I know all anyone who's vegan listening to this is like, yeah, whatever. And <laughs> whatever. I must say you are stronger than I. Um, but in in case you yeah. thought, oh man, this is going to be easy, you also were supposed to abstain from alcohol. Um, obviously, at the time, it was you would drink beer and wine diluted as you know your form of hydration because the water could be quite dirty, especially in more urban areas. But you know the point was to. Mm-hmm. You would drink it to, as as a form of hydration. You were not allowed to like, you know, get get a little tipsy, get a little drunk, have a fun time. And you were also <laughs> supposed to abstain from sex for those forty days. So, the no fun times trifecta: no delicious food, no sex, <laughs> no drinking. So lame. <laughs> it, it definitely was not a fun time. It, you know, but it also, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm making light of it, but also <laughs> there is the, this idea of, yeah. you know, this is supposed to be a time where you, you know, put aside like earthly, worldly things and focus on spiritual mm-hmm. things. And that makes enough yeah. sense. And again, this is, it's 40 days, but it's, you know, it, it is bound temporally, right? It's not like an ongoing yeah. thing. You have, <laughs> you know, you have Carnival beforehand, you have Easter afterwards. So it's kind of this yeah. bookending of feasts and parties and having a good time. <laughs> and, you know, they're... This is not to say that everyone went along with this happily. Um, there, <laughs> by the Middle Ages, we do have records of Lent being enforced, where people actually could be punished if they were caught eating meat, or you know, it was it was typically things like actually being caught eating something you weren't supposed to. I mean, oh, wow. it would probably be much harder to catch you in the act of. You know, they burst into your house in the middle of the night. <laughs> Check that you're sleeping in separate beds. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, this was enforced uh, and there was um, occasionally 
you know, corporal punishment, because that is how crimes in general were punished in the Middle Ages in a lot of cases. But, you know, overall, there is kind of this... It, it's very much like... It's both in, enforced by the, like, law and authorities, but it also mm. would likely be enforced by, you know, community... Um, basically community members, because everyone is supposed to be doing this. You know, we're all in right. it together. <laughs> we're all in this all in together. It. Disney is going to copyright strike us, Devin. Margo, <laughs> cut that part out. Whatever, <laughs> Whatever your name is, Rumpelstiltskin, damn it. <laughs> Guess my name. But, yeah, I mean, I would say it, I wouldn't be you know, obviously this is a very modern analog, but, you know, kind of like wearing masks, right? Like, there's actually, in in a lot of places, criminally, you can be punished for it if you refuse to wear one. But you're also going to be shamed by the rest of the community if you yeah. aren't doing the thing you're supposed to be doing. Um, and even in the Protestant Reformation, Lent was kept by Lutherans and Anglicans. Later on, it was held onto by Methodists, Reformed Christians, Presbyterians. Um, other Protestant denominations tended not to keep Lent, though, because they, in a lot of cases, they just completely got rid of the concept of a liturgical year, so it didn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. And there's also, you know, especially in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, there's a lot of Protestant hand-wringing about, like, but if we fast, is that technically, you know, trying to gain salvation through works when I'm only supposed to gain it through faith? And you're like, okay, like, my dude, if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. It's fine. Like, <laughs> you do you. <laughs> but in any case, I mean, as as the social structures basically became more open to differences in faith, and, you know, in in terms of having more religious tolerance, at least to a certain degree, there, <laughs> you know, the, this over time becomes a much more private practice, um, which is more similar to what we see today, where typically people don't run around, like, yelling at other people to enforce Lent, or, like, <laughs> go around telling everyone, like, oh, man, I gave up this for Lent, it's the worst thing ever, blah, blah, blah. I'm gonna talk about it all the time. And if you do, I need you to stop. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to hear about it. I'm not gonna talk <laughs> about my nonsense, you don't have, you know? We can all, I mean, we yeah. can talk about it, but, you know. I support. I, I support. I just feel like if you're gonna give something up, just just do the thing. You don't need to yell yeah. about it. Yeah. I I feel that way too. Excellent. Yeah. Yep. Speaking of having things, you know, giving things up willingly versus having it being forced upon you, Margot, I think it's time we brought it into the new world. Yes. Um, so yeah, so I'm not really going to talk about Lent, uh, specifically in the Americas because, uh, or really specifically about fasting, because like, if we go into like indigenous fasting, that's just, that's a whole other can of worms, um, that like, we'll probably be talking about next season. 
because it is an important fasting is a huge important part of a lot of indigenous cultures in north america but um yeah in this context doesn't really fit and yeah so we're gonna talk specifically about like anglo-protestants in north america and because of that um I'm going to specifically talk about the 19th century and alcohol rather than like a religious sort of theme. Um, nice. Because, which, so religion it does have to, a, yeah. yeah. Religion is going to come into it, but it's not like a ritual part of yeah. the year in that way because of Protestant theology. Um, so there was like a lot of fasting as like punishments and like, to prove devotion or whatever among like the puritans and they were just generally not a lot of fun yeah no fun Um, times allowed as we uh as we get into the 19th century specifically the the 1830s we get this sort of continent-wide movement of temperance and this comes about for um a number of reasons a lot of which have to do with industrialization the development of like a quote-unquote middle class and being afraid of poor people you gotta keep the you gotta keep the poors down margo so so yeah so we've talked about like previously this sort of um system of existence in rural communities uh pre-industrial communities where you have periods of work and then periods of feasting and like revelry and that a lot of these things have to do with subversions of the sort of community order right so like who is in charge who is in charge who is the authority um who gets to control like the dispersal of food and goods and all these things right but it's very much about like revelry and subversion and this sort of thing and it happens in these like very laid out periods ritualized periods um but as you get industrialization that system starts to break down and quite a few things result from that so you have the basically the invention of structured leisure time so you have the work week and then the time off which at this period is you know you're working 16 hour days six days a week you have Sunday off, half of that you spend at church. So you have like a period in the evenings and uh Sunday afternoons, which is yeah. free from paid wage labor, right? And you also have like the development of these large industrialized cities. And because of that development, you have um, right. and because of a lot of things that are going on in Europe. Uh, you have the this mass immigration to British North America and like the United States, things like that, um, which is very unsettling to the 
white Anglo-Protestants who already live there and are afraid of right. everyone and everything. So what starts to happen is now you have these cities, they're full of um, poor wage laborers who are making the slow transition from this agricultural community identity to this very strict urban wage labor identity. Um, and suddenly they're living very close to this new wealthy bourgeois class that has very strict ideas of what is proper and what is not. Um, and a lot of those ideas come from this puritanical uh, concept of like, you know, strict refinement and that your leisure time should be spent bettering yourself and like involved in industrious works. That's two words that mean the same thing, but whatever, <laughs> you know, industrious pursuits. And so what we, what we get is um, a huge culture clash and also um, sort of fear of insurrection. So a few things start happening there where you have um, the very clear bourgeois idea of what this leisure time is supposed to be, right? You should be reading instructive works or going for, right. you know, very chaste walks in the park or, you know, knitting, whatever, like volunteer work, the things to better yourself yeah. in the community and this very, very strict idea of what that betterment is. And that they all have to really fall within this that line of propriety and also conformity to these Anglo-Puritan ideas, right? Um, another thing that's happening is, right. obviously, we talked about um, a few episodes ago, the Second Great Awakening, um, where you get things about, like, bodily purity and and religion having a lot of effects on... Um, like the medicalization of the body and like the whole Kellogg thing that we were talking about where it's like super boring, awful food. So food is no longer about, you know, feasting or God's bounty or whatever. It's this way of purifying your body so that it can enter this like second kingdom of heaven. Um, that is sort of taking over the continent as well. And alcohol is a big no, no in that there's a lot of, um, evangelical teetotalers that come out of this movement um and the strict sort of victorian um obviously this is in north america so it's not really victorian but this like 19th century strict anglo-puritanism and this new evangelical movement that has this large focus on bodily purity um conflicts greatly with the low the working classes you know new urban society and with immigrant communities that are often yeah. you know from 
not Anglo parts of Europe and are often Catholic. God forbid. <laughs> Those scary oh. Catholics. Those scary, scary Catholics. Yeah. They'd come over yeah, practicing so, um, Lent. Look at that. They're running around <laughs> doing faith through works the wrong way instead of eating only, you know, <laughs> cornflakes and unsweetened graham so, crackers. Yeah, it's a it's a huge culture clash and the this new sort of controlling merchant class, this bourgeois class really takes it upon itself to better society. And this is where you get like the progressive movement. Um Andrew Carnegie is a big part of this and this um overturning of a lot of public spaces. So the we talked about in a, um, another episode the idea that the individual family unit becomes the basis for society in North America. Private space becomes much more important. We talked about this with uh, Christmas, that public revelry is straight out. You're supposed to mm -hmm. be like essentially just doing everything at home with your family, close friends, very strict class boundaries. Um, essentially, uh, public spaces are, again, there for those very strict bettering yourself and society things. So like libraries and public parks. And if you weren't behaving very specifically and very properly yeah. in these spaces, then you were eventually, once they got enough of this, like actually passed into law, you were committing crimes um, of like, vagrancy and yep. public drunkenness and Fun whatever. Fun fact, disturbing the peace. Still on the books. Yeah. Can't yeah, be loud so and like... obnoxious in public. <laughs> Can't make noises, Devin. Yeah, and there's like, so there's and there's, there's these dueling reasons for that, mm -hmm. right? So you have the the one, the idea of propriety and what people are supposed to be like and this, like, if we if we create public spaces that are only for this type of thing, then people, then the pores, yeah, <laughs> those those pores <laughs> will be encouraged to participate in those activities instead of these, you know, ritualized carnival type festive activities. Yes. And they'll like better themselves, and then they'll have like better children, and then maybe they won't be so poor anymore. Yep. You know, these kinds of things, or at least they'll be like the good pores, where they're like subservient and quiet and just like don't complain about anything. And most importantly, they won't be going out in public and getting rowdy with each other and start thinking about things like well, maybe we should have a living wage. Oh, Margot, the <laughs> so, horror. Yeah, so there's so there's one this like this very strict like control with the intent of bettering people's positions andrew carnegie is a big proponent of this. this is why there's like 50 million libraries named after him because he's like if i'm going to create a public space then it should be for those few good pores who can get out of their place uh to like have the opportunity to rise above their station or whatever um through hard work and like diligent education um not that somebody who's working six days a week and then attending church on Sunday has a lot of time for the library, but that apparently wasn't a big concern to him. Um, 
The other reason is that one of the few public spaces that did continue to exist was the tavern. Yes. And it was a place where men could gather after work and create a community in this space, right? So you, right. You're, there's, the tavern is a space where they can reconstruct the sort of like reveling aspects of public spaces from pre-industrial society in this new industrialized urban space. Yes. And the community in the tavern, um, in a similar way to coffee houses in Europe and uh, what eventually becomes like salons, leads to angry justifiably angry discussions mm -hmm. right and this is where you get um like the american communist movement and anarchist movements um and those same movements happening in canada they're coming out of these public spaces and yes. this is another reason why the temperance movement really wants to attack alcoholic distributors because then you can control what kinds of public spaces there are and then like only allow young men to go to like the ymca yeah because like they're they'll just you know like play tennis and like read the bible or whatever unless you're part of the village people in which case the ymca is for gay sex very much so <laughs> um yeah but and so like there's that control and and this is a very real legitimate beer especially in the united states because at this time anarchism like legitimate anarchism when i'm talking about this i'm talking about like emma goldman yeah and you know people who are talking about like we want to still have a structured functioning society but without this aggressive hierarchy that is keeping people impoverished and sick yeah right? like we want or to get rid of unjustifiable hierarchy yeah. basically exactly yeah um and she, you know she was really involved in like women's access to contraceptives and changing the educational system so that you know everyone has free access to education at yeah. the pace at which they learn it's whatever yeah um, but also especially the communist party the american communist party is historically the most popular a third party in american history oh yeah in by this far. period yeah in this period in the 19th century i mean there are elections like national elections where the communist party is getting upwards of 12 to 15 percent of the vote which in the american system yeah, that essentially of. does not allow for a third party to get any part of a vote like it's yeah. just bonkers um that is huge that is massive that's you know getting a presidential candidate on the ballot in every state right so the this fear of a party that is run by workers that is run by these rowdy pores <laughs> <laughs> Which like, and I know I keep saying that, like talking about them as like, oh, the pores, but that's really how people like the, the, the bourgeois. I self-identify as a poor, poor, a rowdy yeah, poor. So like, yeah. the, the, the bourgeois didn't, these, these like wealthier classes, these merch, 
merchant classes, these managerial classes, the leisure classes, really didn't think of workers as being the, like, the same kind of people. Yeah, no, they did not see them as, like, fully actualized human beings. Yeah, and there's actually, and that's where, like, a lot of the legality around temperance comes in, where, one, you have these, like, racialized codes that dehumanize and infantilize people of color, but also do the same thing for white people or what people who become white, yeah. like the Irish. Um that like it it infantilizes them it makes it so that they if you are a worker if you do not own property you don't have like the same kind of rights you don't you're not thought of as like a full person like so at this period right we get universal male suffrage in the United States but also like you can't buy alcohol yeah. or make decisions about what you put in your own body so like there's there's things like that, and a, and a lot of it is fear of if people are getting together and they are drinking and they have already been like indoctrinated with these com scary communist ideas of like the eight hour day and <laughs> living wages, the eight hour the eight hour workday at the you living know, wage, disability like payments weekends. if you get hurt on the job, like wow, crazy yeah, basic job safety. Uh, you know, making sure that like the looms aren't going to rip off your entire arm, like these, you know, that like children should be in school and not in factories, like these bananas ideas. Crazy. Oh my gosh, they're going to be radicalized by these uh, crazy communists. And once you get a little bit of drink in them, then they'll become wild, rabid <laughs> men who will like take on the streets. And it does happen, you know, at the the taverns and like having liquid courage does help with some of the organizing, yeah. right? Getting everyone to join a strike is easier if they're signing up. <laughs> you know, at the tavern with all of their friends. Yeah, the peer saying, pressure. Like, you have to do it too. Yeah. So, like, the, the strikes come out of the taverns, um, but what the what the bourgeois classes are, like, really afraid of is that they'll move from, you know, just not showing up to work and supporting each other at home yeah. to a sort of, like, uh, pre-industrial rowdiness where like they come a la christmas and set someone's yard on fire or like break into their house and destroy all their stuff um they're trying really to control that not just to control the workers and make sure that they're coming to work um which is a huge part right. of it but also that they're not going to be out in public or coming into wealthy people's private spaces so the temperance movement like there is all this like high-minded talking about like medicalizing alcoholism and you know talking about like health and purifying the body in this very second grade awakening way but it is a lot of the wealthy colonials which is canada right so canada is still a colony at this point Wealthy colonials and or like citizens of the New Dominion uh, and 
wealthy Anglo-Americans being afraid of poor people and poor racialized people and the power that they could have under an actual democracy. And if, but yeah, so like a, a, a major sort of push for this was very vocally saying like, we have to control and, uh, like integrate people into the society people need to what's the you have to assimilate into this very strict puritanical victorian society where you respect the hierarchies that already exist um and strive to move up this supposed social ladder that really doesn't exist there is not often a way to climb that ladder at all um but we're gonna like put it out there and say that everyone's equal except for again the poors and the communists who want to actually have any sort of equality in this period so uh yeah that's where we're at with with temperance (laughs) and now i'm gonna take it away with another very popular way to control the poors which is abstinence only sex education slash you know cutting access to birth control and knowledge about Mm -hmm. birth control so i'm going to jump in with the temperance thing and say you know a lot of the time it was also billed as a well we need to get rid of alcohol because men go to the taverns with their money and they spend all their money on alcohol so then they don't they aren't looking after their wives and kids and then they come home drunk and beat their wives so that's why we need to stop this which I'm sure that there were some people who did genuinely believe that, but let's be real. That is not the case because, you know, um, that's not actually what's going on with temperance as we talked about. And uh, I think another part of a case in point is you are simultaneously saying, well, we have to get rid of the alcohol because women's women are being put in danger by it. But these are the same people who are simultaneously actively yeah. stopping women from accessing birth control, which would yep. have been life-saving <laughs> for many of them. I mean, you know, basically, you know, for the vast majority of human history, <laughs> your sex education likely came from, like, living on a farm. Like, you see what the animals get up to. And, you know... It, We have this idea that everyone in the past until like the 1960s was like super stuffy, buttoned up, never spoke about, you know, such nefarious deeds. But like, no, that's very much a Victorian thing. You look at people in, you know, the ancient world, the Middle Ages, the (laughs) early modern period. There's, yeah. Yeah. It's dick jokes. (laughs) It's stories about everyone cheating on everybody else. It's... Well, lots of weird <laughs> sex acts, naked paintings of naked people. Like, it's just, you know, I mean, that's not to say they were open-minded. You were still, you know, hypothetically supposed to only sleep with your spouse, especially if you were a woman. Yeah. But, you know, they're also, they're, there's plenty of R-rated content, right? Like, you can still read about, you know. Dangerous liaison. Uh, adultery and you know you can still sing all the 
all exactly you know all all the ballads people sing that involve all kinds of innuendo and for the most part it was also pretty common to believe that women were actually the ones who were more sexually demanding that it's you know men are able to control themselves and you know be more you know upright and proper whereas women you know we just we just want to do it all day every day men have the mental capacity to control yes. their bodily urges yes and also you know physically men can only only go so many times yeah whereas you know i mean genuinely <laughs> that was one of the <laughs> that was one of the arguments for why women are just insatiable creatures because you know it there, there is no uh you you aren't forced by nature to stop as it were <laughs> no off button exactly <laughs> but so it's not really until the victorian era that we start seeing these notions of not just morality like okay you're a woman you're only supposed to sleep with your husband and that makes you moral but now it turns into this like purity thing where you're supposed to be this angelic woman who tends to the hearth and you have no physical needs, no desires, especially not for sex. You should, you know, lie back and think of England and be innocent like a child. And, you know, sex should only be for the purpose of procreation, missionary position in the dark. Preferably you're still wearing your nightgown situation. It's the Victorian era is rough. <laughs> and you know there is also in, during the Victorian era, you know there there a is lot an of emphasis weird, kinky on stuff. oh absolutely there's a lot of weird <laughs> kinky stuff going on, but you know there there is men are also to an extent supposed to be pure because they you know the Victorians are really on about no self abuse because uh, <laughs> masturbation because obviously if you do that you will not grow into a strong vigorous man and you yeah. know you'll have hairy palms and you'll go blind and whatever <laughs> but anyway so the Victorians were a bunch of incels yeah pretty much <laughs> but um, you know, you, you do the, the issue does become though, that, you know, traditionally there were lots of different methods people used to space pregnancies, whether that's the rhythm method, pulling out different herbal remedies, barrier methods, mm -hmm. even into the 19th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not a hundred percent effective, but you know, it's better well, than nothing's nothing. 100% effective. <laughs> exactly. But you know, and, and in, in a pre- industrialized world you did want to have a lot of kids because mm -hmm. a lot of them were going to die but you know <laughs> you could at least space them out a little bit yeah but by the 19th century there are some assorted issues that makes it harder for women to have access to these remedies either because they've moved into the city so mm -hmm. the ingredients aren't as easily available mm -hmm. um, in a lot of cases girls and young women are moving into urban areas to be maids or work in factory away from their families from a very young age. So they're not necessarily getting, you know, an education from older female family members about mm -hmm. tracking your cycle or talking about how your body works. And you yeah. lose a lot of this knowledge that's kind of in the sort of realm of, you know, passing down from family members, basically. Yeah. Midwifery. Exactly. But it is... In the late 19th century, when you start seeing the actual outlawing of contraception 
and even spreading information about contraception. In the United States, that's the Comstock Laws. They start up in the 1870s as part of the Social Purity Movement, which was about outlawing vice. Uh, it's mostly Protestant moral reformers and, you know, middle class women who think they're holier than thou, essentially. So you are. The Comstock Act of 1873 was a federal law that prohibited mailing any, quote, article or thing designed or intended for the prevention of conception or procuring of abortion, as well as any form of conceptive information. So you can't even mail out pamphlets to people about rhythm method. You can't mail contraceptive pills. You can't... It, it really stops the spread of information. Mm -hmm. Um... And in Canada, you have similar laws. They come up a little bit later. Um, but in 1892, there's a federal law passed into the criminal code, making it illegal for you to sell or advertise birth control in Canada. Um, and that is um, in section 179 of the 1892 Canadian Criminal Code. So, you know, in in both you know, in both Canada and the US, you have people literally going out of their way to stop women from having access to contraception. Um, yeah. Despite the fact that a lot of women, especially a lot of lower class women, really, really wanted to be able to space their pregnancies. And mm -hmm. this is again about social control of the poors, because the thinking behind it went... If you stop contraception, then nobody will be a prostitute anymore because obviously, you know, prostitutes need birth control, Margot, and if they, they don't do it. have it, <laughs> yes, yes, they will all stop being prostitutes and go be good, uh, respectable housewives, I guess. I don't know what their plan was. <laughs> um, and, and again, it's also, though... Similarly, it is a means of social control because it is a way to keep the working class impoverished. Mm -hmm. Because let's be real, none of these restrictions really applied to wealthier women. Like, oh, of you not. could get all kinds of stuff under the table. This is really about keeping poor women pregnant, mm -hmm. which means that that's more mouths to feed. It keeps everyone desperate. It keeps everyone impoverished. And it also guarantees you a huge labor market so that people are easier to exploit. It's really a win-win if you're a rich capitalist who wants lots of, you know, disposable workers, essentially. Mm -hmm. But basically, you do start seeing a birth control movement in the United States and also in Canada in response to this. And they really start to pick up speed in, you know, the early, early 20th century, mm -hmm. the 19 teens. Um, in, in, uh, the U.S. in particular, you have 1914, a group of political radicals in New York City led by the trifecta, Emma Goldman, Mary Dennett, and Margaret Sanger, who went about going and trying to get contraception and abortion to be accessible to low-income women. Mm -hmm. And you also had similar pushback in Canada, where... You know, you would have 
again, basically radicals, mm-hmm. distributing contraception and in- like um, and information about contraception under the table, basically. Yeah. So it's this big moral debate, right? Where on one hand you have, you know, the upright moral reformers saying, no, these poor women, these poor people should just not have sex if they don't want to have more kids. You should just close your legs, slut, then this wouldn't happen to you. And, you know, you have the radicals saying, no, women are human beings and they have the right to control their own bodies. Yeah. But then, uh, there's finally a turning point, which is World War One, because now <laughs> contraception, sex ed, that goes from being a moral issue to a public health issue. Because guess what happens when you send a bunch of young soldiers Teenagers. off to war where they are almost certainly going to die alone in a trench? Turns out they sleep around like there's no tomorrow. Everyone is sleeping with everyone. And they uh, they all come back just racked with all kinds of diseases that they've all picked up and spread around. Riddled. Absolutely just riddled. <laughs> genuinely, I cannot stress enough the sheer amount of sexually transmitted diseases and infections these men came back with. It was nuts. <laughs> so, basically, the US government, there's more information about... Basically... Contraception now becomes a public health issue, an issue of sanitation, of science. And you basically start getting, you know, there, there's definitely still the moralizing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite example of this is the U.S. military took to um, basically doing sex ed for the soldiers mm-hmm. so that they would have some idea. And the earliest sex education film is called Damaged Goods, and it warned soldiers of the consequences of syphilis. So in the movie, a man has sex with a prostitute the night before his wedding night, and he catches syphilis from her. And then when he sleeps with his wife, she gets pregnant, but this disease is passed on to his newborn child, and then he cannot live with himself, and he commits suicide. And that's what happens if you have sex outside of marriage. You will get pregnant, you will get syphilis, you will die. (laughs) Now, chlamydia. (laughs) K-L-A. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, as ludicrous as that, that scenario sounds, I mean... Not I. I also don't want to make light of this because syphilis. that was. Yeah, I don't want to make light of syphilis and other venereal diseases because that genuinely was a big issue. Was men going out cheating on their wives mm-hmm. with, you know, either sex workers or with just random other women mm-hmm. who were willing to sleep with them and then coming home and they would give their wives these diseases. It could be passed to their kids. So, you know, it's it's a whole thing where it suddenly does become this health issue. So the U.S. military's sex ed programs actually started to inspire similar instruction in secondary schools. And as we've talked about previously, there was a big push in the 20th century, especially after World War II, to have more people attend high school. 
Yeah. So you see a lot of these schools through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, starting to integrate more of these, you know, human anatomy slash sexuality curricula. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, that's where you can look up a lot of these like 1940s, 1950s classroom clips. And they are, some of them are just absolutely hilarious. And some of them are not bad in terms of, you know, actually Actually explaining, yeah, actual information about like tracking fertility and Mm -hmm. how the menstrual cycle works. So as this sort of starts starts kind of chipping away at these taboos where you know now sex is being being seen as both a moral thing and a health issue mm-hmm. you know there's still this ongoing debate both in the US and in Canada about the legality of contraception so there are some legal victories, especially in the 1930s, both in the US and in Canada, with basically people going up against the government and saying, this is, you know, this is not right, this isn't, this shouldn't be legal for you to restrict my access to, you know, condoms Mm -hmm. or to other barrier methods, etc. Yeah. So basically, after... After this point, we do see um, the biggest organization that is formed after these legal victories, basically saying that, okay, at least some contraception could maybe be allowed in some cases. Um, In the 1940s, you see Parenthood Federation of America was formed, which basically creates a nationwide network for birth control in the U.S., um yeah and you get similar not nationwide networks necessarily but you do get similar clinics opening Mm -hmm. in canada and at a certain point planned parenthood does start opening up clinics in canada as well but surprisingly it's really not i mean maybe not surprisingly but a lot of these criminal codes are not actually removed until the 60s and 70s um, in the U.S., unmarried women were not allowed to get a birth control prescription without the permission of their parents until the 1970s. And in Canada, after many, many years of effort, the part of the criminal code that makes it illegal to advertise or sell birth control was removed in 1969. Yep. There's been a lot of moral hand-wringing and panic over letting poors control their own bodies. And I will say it continues up till this day. Well, Um, I mean, like, with industrialization, the thing that you have to sell, mm -hmm. right, since you're no longer producing things the thing you have to sell is your time and your physical ability to work so if you're poor and you need to make a living under capitalism what can you sell it's your body your body is no longer yours it is the property of a capitalist yep so you should not have the right to control it and to be cleared 
Um, this is this is still very much an ongoing issue with regards to proper sex education and also to access contraception. There, you know, you look through the U.S. with their abstinence-only sex education in a lot of states. Oh yeah, from North Carolina. Yep, <laughs> and uh, in it is rough. In my uh, home province of Ontario, we recently reverted back to the 1998 sex ed curriculum because, God forbid, we talk about trans people in a sex ed class or being gay. God forbid we talk about, you know, the facts of life with kids in, like, high school age. Not talking about safe homosexual sex has never had any bad, bad. <laughs> yeah, Devin, I can't think of a time when that was a real problem. <laughs> not a single time. Definitely, definitely not a problem under the Reagan administration. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there's, it's a lot of the time, you know, I guess to round off our episode, finish off, I think there is. <laughs> A lot of the rhetoric we get around drinking and around sex and sexuality (laughs) is about morality and being a good, productive citizen, but it's really about controlling the poors. It has always been about controlling the poors. It is Mm -hmm. about making sure that we are kept as, you know, as as you said, essentially, that we have to keep selling ourselves to capitalism and that we can never escape, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, super fun. So, um, I mean, uh, I, I so guess in review... To the Baba Yaga project, we're real salty. <laughs> I mean, I guess in review, medieval Lent doesn't sound half bad. <laughs> As compared when to... faced with the crushing weight of capitalism, <laughs> being a vegan for 40 days, <laughs> when you have your, like, beautiful medieval pastoral home, everything's fine. But I mean, in, in all seriousness, I think there is something to be said about there is a big difference between, you know, for religious slash spiritual purposes deciding mm-hmm. to give something up for a time in order to better focus on spirituality and religiosity that's fine that's your own choice yeah. do what you want mm-hmm. the problem becomes when it is enforced by people in authority yeah for their benefit yes. rather than yours yes very much so Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Tune in next season if you're interested in all this, because we're going to be talking a lot more about contraception, abortion, birth control. Yeah. Women's rights. Who who to thunk? Communism. (laughs) God. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. 
please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week. Bye.